Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. As we're settling in this morning, uh, you can open up in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. This is the next meal that we're going to look at in the series. And uh, before we read our passage, however, I want to ask a question, kind of a probing question. And I want to ask, what if I were to tell you that you have a problem, uh, that most of us have a problem? It's kind of a condition that is actually so universal uh, that almost all of us are dealing with it. It's a condition that is uh, actually so stealth and subtle that even if you have it, you might not be aware of it. There's no uh, warning bells that go off. There's no alarm. There's no red flags oftentimes. Uh, Most of the time, there's no perspective of concern. Uh Uh-oh, because it's just so common. And the danger is that because so many of us have it, we're not even aware when someone else is struggling with it, let alone ourselves. And, and so what's worse, though, is the culture around us, as it does with many things, takes this problem and this condition, and it celebrates it. It tells us it's a really good problem to have. It's, it means that you matter. It tells us that it's good. It's so in favor of it, it welcomes it, it prizes this problem, it treasures it in such a way that, in fact, if you don't treasure it, treasure it or prize it or value it the same way the culture does, you could actually be in danger of losing your job. What is this problem, this universal issue? It's busyness. And Jesus is about to deal with it head on this morning. He wants to challenge the notion that it's just so good to be busy. The distraction of busyness. There was an uh, author in the New York Times named Tim Kreider who wrote an article a couple years ago called The Busy Trap. And the premise of the article was that we as Americans are probably the most prone, the most susceptible to be caught up in the snare of the busy trap, to believe that we have this mentality that busyness is a good thing. And here's what his research showed. It showed that 134 countries around the world actually have laws that limit the number of hours of a work week. So you're only allowed to work a certain number of hours. The U.S. is not one of those countries. Uh, In the U.S., 86% of males and 69% of females work more than 40 hours per week. In America, the 40-hour work week is largely a myth. He says that uh, Americans work 137 hours more per year than the Japanese. We work 260 more hours per year than British workers, and we work 500 more hours per year than French workers. Now, I know as I say that, most of you would be saying, God bless the USA. (laughs) I mean, we are just hard workers. But actually, the question I want to ask this morning, and I'm asking it because I think Jesus is asking it, is that really a blessing? Is it really a blessing when medicine has told us for a number of years now through research and study, that actually the trap of busyness ruins our hearts. It elevates blood pressure. It causes our cognition and our thinking to be warped and off. It steals away our sleep. It ruins connection with family and community. It actually kills us. (laughs) Our lifespan dramatically decreases. But for some reason, we can't see it. And we just keep going and going and going We're addicted to distracted busyness. It's the frenetic, distracted, destructive, overcommitted, 
schedule bulging, child ignoring, spouse forgetting, God excluding, meal skipping, rest robbing, peace ruining, mind numbing condition called busyness. And what we're going to see this morning and what we need to see is that this problem is really bigger than just having a full schedule and a lot of responsibilities. That actually there's a root problem. And in Kreider's article in the New York Times, he calls it an existential reassurance that staying busy can give us. This idea that there's a hedge I can build around a feeling of emptiness. Because after all, I mean, you got to be a pretty important person if your schedule is jam-packed. If I can't get in touch with you and your phone is always ringing and dinging and vibrating and every hour of your day is booked and scheduled and if I ever call you and, you, and say, what are you doing? And you don't have an answer for that. Well, gosh, what does that say about you? Uh, it says your life is pretty important. And how in the world could your life be silly or insignificant or trivial or meaningless if every hour is accounted for and you're a super busy person? Well, Jesus says, actually, that if that's the way that you think, if you think, well, just the alternative of that is laziness and apathy, who wants that? Jesus says, if that's the way that you think, there, there are some danger signs, some things that you got to watch out for. Uh, your life could actually be headed for a dead end. Now, the Chinese, their um, alphabet looks a little different than ours, right? So they, instead of using letters, they have symbols, it looks like symbols. And in the Chinese, if you take the two symbols that you put together for busyness, you add them together, it's busyness. The first symbol is heart. And the second symbol is murder. And there is actually a way, I think, that what Jesus is telling us is that you can be a believer of Jesus Christ this morning, but approaching life in such a way that it will actually kill your soul. And so what I would suggest is that this is one of those sermons that for some of us is going to be really hard to hear. If you're a mom and you have a bunch of kids or you're a new mom, this is going to be hard to hear. If you're a single parent, if you're running a small business, if you're caring for family members who are sick, if you're a grad student, this might be really hard to hear this morning. In fact, I'd probably suggest that it would be easier for, for you to hear me preach a sermon about how to engage in sexual purity, or how to serve your neighbor more, how to offer more hospitality, how to get involved in community service projects, how to pursue holiness, because that would be more palatable. You would just add that to your to-do list. And what Jesus is saying, us to this, saying to us this morning is that he wants you to sit, and he wants you to soak, and he wants you to savor everything that he said. And if your hearts are like mine, then there's going to be a pushback. And you might be saying, come on, Jesus, really? I mean, have you seen my day? Have you seen my schedule? I have so much to do. To sit? This is naive. Really? What is this going to do? And here's what he's about to say. There's only one way that we can dis turn distractive busyness into devoted service. And it's not just by stopping. It's not just by going on vacation. It's not by hitting up social media or entertainment. It's by sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so here's our passage for the morning in Luke chapter 10. We're going to dive into this, this passage and 
and see what Jesus has to say about our distracted busyness. And we pick up in uh, chapter 10 and verse 38, and it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but not God's word. It stands forever. And so with that, let's pray and ask that God's word would have our hearts and our attention this morning and that we would sit at his feet and soak in his word. Lord, this morning we come as a distracted, busy people. Perhaps we're not even aware of all the different ways that our hearts are really hungering and thirsting for you. But I pray that you would peel it back this morning and and elevate our desire for you. God, may we leave this morning being a people who delight to meditate on your word day and night. Lord God, you need to do a deep work because part of the problem uh, with our busyness is that we're afraid to be alone and to be empty and to be quiet. And so, Lord God, I pray that what you have said about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be true of us this morning and that you would feed us by your word, that we would feast towards your glory and in your power, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the first thing we see in this passage, and you can just follow along on the outline. The first idea that this passage gives us is the idea of welcoming Jesus. How can you know that you're somebody that has welcomed Jesus into your life? Well, it shows us in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So we see a welcome there. Then in verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at his feet listening to what he said. We welcome someone, don't we, when we give them attention. And then in verse 40, it's not on the screen, but in the NIV it says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, which is really another sign of welcome. Now there's two things in this passage that I want you to see. Both are important. Sometimes we pit them against each other. We don't need to because they're both good. The first idea is sitting and listening to him. That is, he's near you. How do you know if you've welcomed him? He's near you, and you're glad about it. You're listening to him. You're leaning in. You're soaking. That's the picture of Mary in verse 39. She's sitting at his feet. Now, the Greek phrase there for sitting at his feet is the same Greek phrase that's used to describe the apostle Paul and the way that he learned and was educated at the feet of Gamaliel in Acts 22.3. And so what it's talking about is not necessarily that Paul, every time he went to class, was sitting down. What it's talking about is the posture of his heart that he was receiving, the way that he received his whole education from this guy named Gamaliel. He gave him his devoted attention, his, his listening, a leaning in and a learning from someone 
So in 2015, when John Schmoltz was introduced into the Hall of Fame, in his speech, he said, I learned the art of pitching by sitting at the feet of Leo Mazzoni and Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin. What did he mean when he said that? He meant that all of who he was as a pitcher and as an athlete was shaped by these men. He allowed his life to be shaped by watching everything that they did. And so that's Mary's posture as well. It's not this laziness or this apathy that that Mary's not willing to help. She's not sitting at Jesus' feet like an adoring puppy looking at her master. She is meditating, soaking in, in this concentrated way, everything that Jesus has to say. It's sort of the exact opposite of the way that we take a call from a telemarketer, right? Hey, I'm uh, calling on behalf of Press 1 if you'd like to be excluded from this. One, 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 how quickly can I hear you stop talking, right? That's the way that we approach telemarketers. Sometimes, if I'm honest, that's the way that I approach my daily routine with Jesus. Jesus, I just want you to be done talking because I've got to get to my list and I've got to get to my stuff. I'm really important. This is really busy. Eugene Peterson uh, has a book called Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Listening. In it, he talks about the Hebrew word Haggah, Haggah is used in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you're familiar with that, is where he says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. So the word meditate is Haggah. Well, what's interesting about that word, Peterson says, is it's also used in Isaiah 31 to talk about a lion growling over its prey, delighting over its prey. And Peterson says, for a while, that was pretty confusing. Like, how do those words go together? Meditate and growl. Until he saw his dog come in from the back Montana woods up to his little cabin with a bone. And his dog was growling over the bone. And it was savoring it and chewing it and delighting in it and feasting on it and savoring it. And that's when it clicked for Peterson That's what meditation looks like. Meditation on the Word of God, to delight in the law of God, is Haggah. Is there any of that in your daily routine? As you think about your week, are you willing to sit and to savor and to soak and to digest at the feet of Jesus, His every word? We need it. It's important. And it's actually a sign that we've welcomed Jesus into our life. But interestingly enough, the other sign that we've welcomed Jesus into our life is also serving. It's not sitting or serving, it's also serving. And so serving is important. It's a really good thing. The second sign that you've welcomed into your life is this type of radical service that comes out of a grace-filled sitting. Now, Martha's distracted. Obviously, that's not a good thing. Um, by all the preparations that she had made. Later, she calls it work. But if you look at the context of Luke chapter 10, what what we haven't read is at the beginning of this passage is Jesus sending out 72 disciples. And as he sends them out, he says, listen, I've got good news and bad news. As you go out, you're going to be totally rejected. Nobody's going to listen to what you have to say. But the good news is I'll be with you. 
So go and serve. And they do. That's radical. And they come back rejoicing. They overflow. And then the second thing in Luke chapter 10, right after that happens, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's that about? What's the context of the Good Samaritan? It's this costly service, being willing to sacrifice, serve, give up your time, your comfort, your money, even towards a total stranger. That's radical service. It's a good thing. And so here's the deal. Sometimes we can read this passage uh, and sort of pit those two ideas against one another, that it's either serving or sitting. Some of us are Marthas. Some of us are Marys. Or that it's promoting one versus the other. That's wrong. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to identify two things. The danger of serving without sitting, of being distracted when we serve, And the second thing it's pointing out is the preeminence of always sitting and soaking with Jesus before we serve. So there's some warnings here. But what we've got to remember is that sometimes our very best service, our best doing in the kingdom, can sometimes sadly be done without Jesus even on the radar screen. He's not even on the horizon. For Martha, he's sitting in her living room, and she misses him incredibly. She misses him completely. So here's here's what we want to ask with number two. How do we miss Jesus? What are the warning signs that we've missed him, that we have distracted service and busyness, that we have activity for Jesus without attention to Jesus? What are the warning signs? Well, let's look at verse 40. It says that Martha was distracted with much serving. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Now, the first thing to notice about missing Jesus is that there's a feeling to it. And that feeling is sort of captured by the word distracted. Now, in the Greek, that word for distracted means to be literally pulled away from something, to be dragged away. It's like the warning when you go to the beach this summer and they put the riptide warning out and suddenly it's not a good thing for you to go out in the water. Why? Because there's a danger that you can be ripped away and that you can get in trouble. And so in the same way, there's this riptide sensation that can so easily surface when it comes to, to distraction. And we can experience it right away in the morning. You wake up in the morning And there's an opportunity to sit with Jesus, but instead there's this riptide that takes you to the news or to your email inbox or your calendar for the day or last night's sports scoreboard. It's this pulling when you think about sitting still with Jesus, but there's much more urgent things that need to get done. And sort of what is aiding and abetting this crime, this riptide sensation, is this place in our hearts that honestly just doesn't always know how to talk to Jesus doesn't know where Jesus is really going to take us, doesn't really know what to do with our shame and our guilt. And to sit quietly can be so unnerving. What are we going to do when it's so quiet and Jesus starts talking to us? What do I do with that time? And so we can miss Jesus altogether. Blaise Pascal is that French physicist and philosopher, Christian theologian, who said, listen, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is his inability to sit quietly alone in his room. The sole cause of our unhappiness is that you and I have no idea how to sit still. 
It's convicting. Jesus says, beware the riptide. But what makes this riptide even more dangerous is that when we're distracted by a good thing, something that we know God commands. I mean, it's in the Bible. We should be doing that. That's good. Hospitality is a good thing. It says in verse 40 that Martha was distracted by what? By much serving. I mean, that's good. There's passages in the New Testament that talk all about this hospitality thing. You could almost imagine Martha responding as Jesus were to give us these commands. Think about Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. I'm on board with that. That's good. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's what I'm trying to do, Jesus. Honor one another above yourselves. Exactly right. Never be lacking in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Amen to that, Jesus. Preach. Practice hospitality. What do you think I'm doing? 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9. What does it say? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I hope it covers Mary's. She's just sitting there. Offer hospitality to one another. I've got that down. Next line, without grumbling. Not so sure about that one. That one's tricky. Not feeling that right now. Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for some have even entertained angels. So what are we saying? Obviously, service is a good thing. Hospitality is a great thing. But I'd like to suggest that there is a way that as believers, we can be really tempted. What we can be tempted to do is to take something that we know is favorable to God, probably even something that syncs up really well with our personality. It's easy for us because of the way that we're wired. And we can take that thing, obedience in this particular area, and we can use it to duck something else that God would like to address with us in our heart. There might be a way in which we can actually use obedience in one way to avoid obedience in another area. And Jesus says there's a danger here in this riptide of getting distracted. And so what, what we have to do is when we give in to that feeling of distraction is we got to stop and, and sit with Jesus. And being careful that what uh, we might be about to give ourselves to might be legitimate scripturally, Uh, But what happens when we do that, when we substitute obedience in one area for another, is that we start to lose our focus. Our focus shifts from Jesus to something else. So look at verse 40 again. (laughs) What does she say? She starts off with Lord. But then listen to what she says. Don't you care that my sister, my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. My me, myself, me. Where has the attention, where has the focus shifted? It's gone from savior attention to self-absorption. She's gone from looking at Jesus to looking at herself. So service is a good thing. It really is. But if you're serving and you can't be or aren't being refreshed by Jesus, then you're distracted. Martha's preparing a meal. Good thing but Mary is feasting, and Jesus is feeding. There's a banquet being served, and when we're fed by him, we can avoid what's happening to Mary in this passage. 
Mary is actually spiritually emaciated. She is serving a meal, but she is starving all the while that Mary is feasting. And this spiritual starving is hijacking her service. And so not only is there the riptide of distraction, the loss of focus, but there's isolation in her voice. Don't you care about me? There it is. Don't you care about me, Lord? And she feels alone, both vertically with the Lord and horizontally with Mary in her relationships, totally isolated. And so when we've lost the sense of the presence of God in our lives, we can become increasingly angry and frustrated And so when the slightest opportunity pops up for you to serve, to answer a call, to help out with somebody here at church, and your first reaction is to be triggered with irritation and a sense of isolation. Am I the only one? I must be the only one here serving. Is anybody else doing anything? And when you start to feel like maybe I'm the only one, this is a sign that you're missing Jesus. And Jesus says, watch out, because without attention to Jesus, entitlement will begin to creep in. She actually has the audacity to give God a command. She walks into the living room and says, tell her to help me. That's entitlement. She starts giving him commands. Suddenly it's Martha's world. It's Martha's kitchen. And there's only one thing on the menu, right? And when there's this sense of commanding and demanding that starts to creep into my heart as I'm serving, I got to watch out. This is the red flag that I'm distracted and missing Jesus. And what we want to understand is that when we're distracted and missing Jesus, that our service is actually not pretty. It's ugly, it's hollow, it's shallow, it's rancid. And so if you try to do what you think God is favoring without first tasting of his feast, you don't become more like him. You become less like him. And nobody around you wants to experience that. And then what we start to do is defend ourselves. I'm so busy, but I'm doing all this, this, this stuff that we actually continue to avoid him and what he'd like to say to our hearts. We got to sit. We got to soak. We got to savor. Because on the other side of that is bitterness and loneliness and isolation. And I would suggest that if we're trying to serve without sitting, that there's only two things that can happen. One, we can burn out physically and emotionally. We can just, or we can give up. We can give up on opening our house. We can give up on hospitality. We can give up on Jesus. I haven't been a Christian very long. I haven't been in ministry very long uh, compared to some, but I've been around long enough to see pastors and missionaries and moms and dads and Christian workers who hit rock bottom and they give up and they scream out, God, you don't work. You just don't work anymore. And they leave. And they leave because he's been right there in their living room. But there's been an unwillingness to sit and to soak and to savor. Don't let that happen. There's a Beatles song, old Beatles song, And the line goes like this, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? They belong at his feet, at his feet. If you're lonely and isolated and bitter, easily irritated, sit, soak, and savor.
All right, so number three. Now, if you're feeling kind of discouraged right now, (laughs) beat up and pummeled because you realize, man, that's me. I feel that way too, but I've got good news for you. It's the best news. It's the, the hope of this passage, and it's believing Jesus. Believing Jesus' promise to us that only one thing is needed. It's not this laundry list of things. There's only one thing needed to right the ship. Believing Jesus that only one thing is needed. What would it actually be like if you believed him on that? It's about belief. It's not a matter of willpower. This issue is an issue of trust. Will you trust your busyness, the schedule that's in front of you, Or will you trust him as boss? That's the issue. It's to sit, soak, and savor. So what do we mean by that? I think what we mean to sit, soak, and savor is to do that until we can taste the goodness of the Lord. Where do we see that in the passage? Actually, we see it in his first address to Martha. He he says to her, Martha, 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 Martha. Now, what we need to understand as we hear him say that is that the word of God is always careful about the way he uses the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God, and he repeated himself very rarely. And so when Jesus repeats himself, it's an indicator every time that he is emotionally moved and stirred. And so, for example, three chapters later in Luke's gospel, as he's approaching Jerusalem, what does he say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's weeping over the city. His heart is breaking when he looks at this whole group of people who have utterly turned their backs on him. It broke his heart. And he's moved to repeat the name of the city. Luke 22, Peter is about to be assaulted by Satan. He doesn't really believe that's going to happen, and he doesn't really think Satan has a chance. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, 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 Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen the brothers. Do you hear his heart for Peter right there? He knows Peter's going to walk. He knows he's going to totally fail in this moment. But he's got hope and faith, and he is committed to Peter. Listen, when we've blown it and we've been distracted and we're all over the map, Our tendency is to anticipate a harsh response from Jesus. So we don't want to be alone. Or we think he's going to totally ignore us. But that's not what he does with Martha. Martha, Martha. Jesus loved Martha. And the apostle John says that in in chapter 11, 5. He says, and Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved her. Even in the midst of her distraction and irritability and isolation. And so this is what we've got to know. We've got to know that as she's sitting in the midst of her sin and exhaustion, not sitting at his feet ready to learn, that oftentimes when we're in the same place, Jesus' words to us are so tender. He loves us, and he wants us to sit and to soak and to savor his tenderness and his love. He says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden and distracted, sit, soak, savor my tender love, my commitment to you. I'm with you. This is how Martin Luther dealt with the same thing. Martin Luther said, and the words should be on the screen, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. 
But my warrant is the word of God. Not, all, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned or want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unfailing word till soul and body sever. For all, though all things should pass away, his word shall stand forever. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God says to you and me, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We got to hold on to that. And I just got to tell you, if I'm honest, there are times when I get up in the morning and I look at his word and his promises, it's almost like someone that has autism that looks at the face of another and can't read the social cues. Sometimes I look at his word and I see those promises. I love you and I say, God, but I don't see it. But you say it. And that's enough. And I'm just going to sit here and soak in that until I'm ready to learn. Athletes say, exercise until you feel the burn. Well, sit and soak until you really learn the heart of Jesus. And lastly, I would say that what he's calling us to sit and soak and savor in is this idea that only one thing is needed and it can never be taken from you. What that means is that no matter how long you've known him, you always need to be receiving from him. Because what does he say? Only one thing is needed. And what is that? It's himself. It's being before doing. He wants it. He wants our service, but he has no needs. He needs nothing. But you and I were designed always to need God. And our salvation doesn't change that. When we're saved, that only enhances our need for God. It enforces it. It enhances it. It enables full access to him. So being close to him is far more important than being busy for him. And learning from him is far more important than giving to him. And attention to him is far more important than accomplishments for him. He wants your, your closeness more than he wants your service. And in fact, if you would do that one thing, the only thing that's needed, then it will radically transform your service. You will start to overflow in these beautiful hospitable ways. You'll serve far beyond the way that you are right now. In fact, you'll be willing to die. That's what his people have always done over the centuries. But it's only going to come as you have sat with him and tasted of his feast. And so when you sit and soak and savor and realize that this is the one thing that can never be taken from you. Isn't that beautiful? Health, yes. Career, yes. Even family. Your kids grow up. They leave the house. Everything else can be taken from you. But not this. Not Jesus himself. Not his presence. Not his word can never be taken away. Sit and soak and savor that reality. Eugene Peterson said, hey, look, I would never try to be a butcher or pretend that I'm an electrician because I wouldn't last 20 seconds. They would find me out like that. But you can actually fake being a pastor and no one will ever know. I would say that's pretty true. And what's also true is that we can have a tendency and a temptation to fake being a vital Christian. And it's really not true of us either. Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Sit, soak, savor. 
You know what's amazing about this passage is that Martha gets it. She actually gets it. And we know that because of John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. And her house is filled up with guests for the funeral. And there are preparations to be made. But in John chapter eleven twenty, it says that when she heard that Jesus was coming, Martha ran out to meet him. Suddenly her knack and her instinct to service falls by the wayside. She runs out of preparations and service and all this stuff she's been doing for the people in her house. She totally abandons it and runs out to get Jesus. And then she comes up with two of the wisest, most gospel-packed statements that anybody has ever made about Jesus. Listen to what she says. Lord, if you had been here, I know that he would not have died. And even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And then in verse 27, she says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She got it. And if you're here this morning and you want to get it too, there's only one thing that you need to know. There's only one thing that we need to do. And it's right here in front of us this morning. The one thing that we have to do is not to just stop activity and vacation and get distracted with the busyness of other things. But the one thing to do is to sit and to soak and to savor and to feast at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to do that. Father in heaven, I think that's what we want. But that place of quiet aloneness can sometimes be alarming. And we're not sure what to do with that space. So, Lord God, I pray that we, as your people, as we leave here this morning, as we feast on your table and then head out into the busyness of our week, that you would give us a heart and a mind and a soul and an appetite for you and your word and the kind of fullness that only you can give us in Jesus. We need it. We want to serve, but we want to serve out of fullness that it might be beautiful and glorifying and that it might point the way to Christ. Thank you for this body of believers. God, may we be one in spirit this morning and may we feast together. In Jesus' name, amen.